This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Claire Fletcher, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. Claire was born and raised in St George, Queensland, before she studied journalism and business in Brisbane. She moved to Sydney for a journalism internship at the Walkley Foundation and has worked there ever since. In 2019, she completed the year of the novel course at Writing New South Wales with Emily Maguire, who we both know. Mm -hmm. I love Emily. And her short story, Death's Waiting Room, won the body in the library category at the Scarlet Stiletto Awards in 21. This is her debut novel and it's called Five Bush Weddings. It's a charming romantic comedy set in rural Australia. And I had dinner with your publisher last night. Nikki, she's the best. (laughs) Nikki Krista, she is absolutely the best. So we've got two people in common, Nikki and Emily. Both just angels. I mean, Mm. I feel so lucky with everyone I've met in publishing so far. And also, I don't know if you know Caroline Errington. I don't know Caroline super well personally, but I've definitely worked yeah, with her a little bit. Yeah, because she's one of Walkley. Yeah. Mm, yeah, has. we've had her speak at some of our events in the past. I mean, she's one of those amazing people that spans fiction as well as incredible reporting. Mm, and she's now running the book section mm. in the Australian. So, Claire, you need to tell us how you came to writing. I mean, I guess you came via journalism, but tell me how you grew up and what was it that drew you to writing and storytelling? Yeah, it's a wonderful question and I think storytelling and reading were always a huge part of my childhood and I think I always hoped that I would write a book. When you're a kid you have all that incredible confidence and not much idea of the reality of the world, so I just assumed. I've told this story before, but you'll like this, Claire. Holly Ringland, uh, when she was in a couple of years ago now, she told me that when she was 11, she wrote to publishers and told them that she was coming with a book at some point. (laughs) took about 20 years, but she just wanted to forewarn people. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good planning, isn't it? It's extremely good planning. And I wouldn't say I was as well prepared as Holly. That is iconic. Uh, But definitely, you know, mum would read to my sister and I a lot as children. And I would love whenever we got to do creative writing at school. I was always writing very strange little stories. I won a competition. There was this, it was called Nestle Ride Around Australia and they had obviously different regions um, competing and I don't think many people had entered (laughs) in our region because I, I won the region with a story that did everything you're not supposed to do in a short story and it definitely ended with, it was all a dream. Um... (laughs) So I don't know if I'll be revisiting the crazy tree anytime soon. But it was a great experience and I got to go to Brisbane and meet the other finalists and got a lot of books for my school. And And where were you living? That was in St George. Right. 
and tell me a bit about St George. I want to talk about place because mm. the book is very much about that as well, isn't it? So tell me where that sense of place comes from. I speak to authors that live overseas, that live in the US or live in the UK, but they're still writing about books set in Australia because it's where their imagination is, where their place is, what they know. So tell me how that was for you growing up. Yeah, I grew up in St George. It's about six hours drive from Brisbane in mm-hmm. southwest Queensland. It's it's inland and it's not far from the New South Wales border. It's really flat. Um, it's always been very affected by drought and that kind of weather. Uh, it's a town that sits on the banks of the Boulogne River. It's a beautiful river and there's a lovely path that runs along there. And the main industries are sort of uh, cattle and sheep, livestock, Cotton farming is big there as well, mm. but it's a small town. It's about two and a half thousand people in the town and the sort of surrounding districts. But that was where my parents grew up. That was where I grew up, and it's all I know. And I think I hear what you're saying about other writers who've lived overseas still returning to Australia as a place. You know, I mean, I I didn't. I, I was urban and stayed urban. I haven't moved that far from where I was born. But the smell of urban, like I remember the smell of glebe in summer. Yeah, it's foundational. You know, it's kind of, mm. it's in your cells. And I suppose even for me, I've lived in cities for the last twenty years. But when I did start writing fiction again a few years ago, I every time I sat down to write something, I found myself going back to those places because they're just so deeply in me and I think, I hope that comes across on the page Mm. in this book. Um, Yeah, even though I haven't been to St George as much as I would like to the last few years. Are your parents still there? Yeah, mum and dad are both still in St George. Uh, My sister has settled not too far from there. She's about three hours away, which Mm -hmm. is close for mum. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you? So I live in Summerhill. I'm in a west like oh, you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just near us. When did you leave St George and what did you think your career was going to be? So after I finished primary school in St George, I went to Toowoomba to go to boarding school for high school. Ah, oh, right. There yeah. is a high school in St George, but I think my parents were always really committed to the idea of education and judges made that choice to send my sister and I away to school, which isn't always easy to do in a town like that. Um, mm. I think it was... Obviously, it's hard to send your child away when they're a young teenager um, and you love having them around, but it's also a bit hard to stick your head out. I think my mum was maybe ostracised a little bit for making that decision because it's sort of like, oh, my my child's too good for the school here. Um, But it wasn't about that at all and, and I think it was a really great experience for me. There are boarding schools and there are boarding schools and I think when a lot of people imagine boarding schools, I had a friend in Brisbane who accused me of being a pony-owning troglodyte when I told her I'd gone to boarding school. But the reality was it was an all-girls school in Toowoomba that wasn't the most salubrious. We didn't have our own oval. It was on a block next to a bowling club that the nuns were trying to buy for many years so that they could put in an oval. I guess it exposed me to ideas and to people that I might not have met otherwise. I want to just touch on, because I went to an inner city school that had a boarding school as well. I wasn't a boarder, obviously. And a lot of the boarders um, came from rural and remote areas. Uh, And I always wondered how much they missed home. Everyone missed home. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it was a time, so this was... How old were you when you left home? I was 12. Yeah. I'm born late in the year, so I was 12. 
Yeah, I mean, it takes you out of everything you know and everyone you know, and you're suddenly surrounded by a bunch of girls your own age who are also feeling pretty lost and missing their parents. You know, I grew up in town, so I don't have that same connection to the land, but for a lot of people, it was the first time they'd gone to school with other kids. They might have done School of the Air when they grew up on a property really Mm. isolated. (laughs) It was the late 90s, and so we didn't have mobile phones. Mm. The internet wasn't a huge thing. Like we had, when I first started, we had one computer in the library that had the internet on it. And I remember someone had heard that there were naked photos of Brad Pitt on the internet. So everyone was trying to find those. I never heard that at the time. (laughs) (laughs) But in the dormitory, we had two phones, two landline phones. One of them was actually a pay phone. So it was And STD calls were expensive then. Yeah. It was hell trying to, like, get your slot on the phone at night and, you know, you'd be in this little phone booth cubicle crying, leaning on the wall, (laughs) calling mum and dad. Yeah, it wasn't always easy, but it was also a really special time. I mean, it's not for everyone and I think a lot of people had really painful experiences at boarding school, but for me I made some incredible friendships that, um, you know, I still endure to this day. I'm going up to Queensland to launch the book next week and I've got girlfriends that are coming from all over the place to my hometown just to Mm. see Mm. the book come out. It's, um, Mm. yeah, it's really special. How long were you at boarding school? So it was five years. The whole time? Yeah. And I was lucky that um, my sister's four years younger, so when I was in year 12, she was in her first year. So we got Mm. to have that year together. Do you think that changes a relationship between parents and children? Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, I guess it it fosters a kind of independence that you might probably wouldn't develop if you were growing up at home with your family. Mm. Maybe it creates a kind of distance or you become more comfortable with distance from your family. I went to see Jonathan Franzen a few weeks ago. He was in Sydney and he talked about that. He was talking about Americans in particular because, you know, a lot of Americans move away from home once they start university or what they call school. And usually people, you know, they don't only come home then maybe once or twice a year for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. And once their career kicks off, it's highly unlikely that it's back in their hometown. So from that point on, your relationship with your family is completely different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that's a common experience for people from small towns. I mean, I mm-hmm. don't know that I could have found a career in journalism if I had stayed at mm-hmm. home or it would have looked very different. So then you went to university? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And tell me about that. Uh, it was your classic Brisbane share house experience for four years while I went to uni. I remember reading He Died With a Falafel in His Hand late in high school. So that was my vision. That was my John blueprint. John Birmingham. Yeah, John Birmingham. That was my blueprint for what? Let me tell you a story. <laughs> many, many years ago, I had a shop in Bondi, on Bondi Beach, a bookshop, and he lived down the road. And I, he used to come in and I launched um, his book there and he signed a whole lot of books and he died with a falafel in his hand. He was really popular but he was kind of a bit dishevelled and all over the place, unlike now I think. Um, and one day I arrived at the shop and there he was sleeping at the door and I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I think I need to sign a few more books. <laughs> it was very funny. But anyway, he was a great guy. He's, a great, he's back in Brisbane now. Yeah, I've only ever known him to be in Brisbane but he's, he does all those amazing, like, pacey airport thrillers now, right? Mm, mm. A chameleon. Mm. Anyway, yeah, so you were living that life. 
Well, you know, it wasn't quite as like filthy and full of bucket bongs as what John Birmingham had led me to believe. I lived with another girl that I knew from school and uh, this guy that we found from her hometown who was studying to be an optometrist. So it was actually quite neat in our house. You never lived at home after you left when you were 12. Is that right? No, not really. I mean, there was always... In boarding school, it was always about getting home. So you'd obviously go home on the school holidays, but we'd have what they called a home weekend every term, which was sort of a long weekend. And you'd spend half of it on the bus getting home. um, (laughs) And then you'd have this kind of snatch of time with Mm. your family. And similarly in university, certainly for me, I would go home over those long summer breaks and do um, seasonal work at home. Mm. So it was a couple of months of grape picking which again was a wonderful, just like a great way to meet people that you might not normally come across. So all those wonderful itinerant workers. It wasn't quite as focused on migrant labour at that time. It was a real refuge of uni kids who would come home to make their cash for the year. Mm. Um, Get paid 10 bucks an hour or something. Yeah, or you'd get paid by the box. Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that kind of weeded out the uh, people who weren't serious about it pretty quickly. I always think of the Christmas holidays you know, because everyone goes home at Christmas. So mm. the pub on Christmas Eve, you know, you'd go to mass and then you would go to the pub afterwards and it would just be the best mm. night of the year because mm. you'd see all the people you mm. grew up with. And So journalism, did you think then that you wanted to be a writer or you you pretty sure that you wanted to be a journalist? Writing was always the dream generally and mm-hmm. I really enjoyed creative writing in high school but I think... Journalism seemed like a more realistic pursuit for mm. university. Um, well, it had a more defined career path, didn't a it? A more defined career path. But, you know, once I got to university, and I've been talking to some other journalists about this lately, they kind of spent the entire degree telling us that we were very unlikely to get a job because, and that was before, you know, the great decline happened mm-hmm. um, in journalism a few years later. So it felt kind of similar when I started doing the year of the novel and you get all the, this advice from people about how it's really unlikely that you'll ever be published. I was like, I've been here before. <laughs> Why do I keep making these choices? <laughs> You want to get a vocational career that you know there's a known job at the end. Who does that, though? Not many people. The thing with journalism, though, is I was nervous for most of that degree because I was worried that I wasn't going to be a very good journalist. You Mm. know, I got into it because I was good at English, but I was actually a really shy person who's very afraid of confrontation. And and a lot of what you see or you think of as journalism is, you know, someone trying to stick a camera into someone's door to push Mm. to get a story or you hear about all these starting journalists being forced to do death knocks where they have to go and visit a grieving mm. family of someone after an accident. I was like, I really... I mean, they're so tenacious, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, they have to be. So I was like, I don't know if I can do that. But I did an internship toward the end of my degree at The Australian. And there have been some incredible journalists come out of The Australian's bureau mm. in Brisbane. Tony mm. Kosh was there at the mm. time, who was mm. wonderfully kind to me. And I also saw Hedley Thomas in action and so it was really interesting to see journalists who had quite a quiet demeanour and it wasn't so much about confrontation as listening mm. and offering people the chance to tell their story to make a difference. And I mm. thought, okay, maybe I can do that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's very different, as you know, to writing a book because I guess in a way it's short form. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to tell you, Cheryl, I've never really worked as a journalist a day in my life. I've never worked mm. in a newsroom. But have you? were you writing at all? Yeah, after I did the internship at The Australian, I did an internship at the Walkley Foundation. So mm. it's an organisation that's all about journalism. And so I've been around journalism and around journalists ever since. Um, mm. I kind of never left mm. <laughs> after that internship. We also did a magazine for many years. Mm-hmm. So I've worked more in an editorial capacity, um, commissioning. Did you work with Trent Dalton at all? Yeah, so Trent contributed to our magazine a few times. You should have thrown that in earlier. (laughs) We love Trent. (laughs) I mean, who doesn't love Trent? I was just looking back through my Instagram a few days ago and looking at pictures of Trent at the launch of Boy Swallows Universe at Glee Books a few years. And it's not that long ago. You know, before that he was just a prize-winning journalist, but now he's one of the biggest authors Mm. we have in this country. Mm. It's really interesting to my readers and the better reading community is how people come to writing and more and more. I mean, Jane Harper, for instance, Mm. more and more it's journalists that have come to fiction. And even though I think, sure, you need to be able to write as a journalist, but it's very different, isn't it? I'm just thinking of Jacqueline Maley, who is a Walkley-winning journalist, and her book, so good. Mm. I don't know why more people aren't talking about that. That needs mm. to be adapted. Mm. So tell me about when you kind of decided that you were going to write a book. Tell me about that process and ideas. and Because the book is called Five Bush Weddings and it's not what it seems. How do you mean? Um, I mean that you expect it to be a certain type of, jo- of genre, but it's more than that. Mm. That's well, really interesting to hear you say that and, and I suppose because I'm so early in this process, yeah, I'm quite interested to hear what people think of the book and what they take away from it. I mean, I wonder if that comes from... I hadn't read a lot in this genre mm-hmm. before I started writing the book. But why this genre? Did you think about... I want to know how you came to the story. Mm. What was it that sparked, oh, wow, I've got an idea? I mean, I was a little bit mercenary about it because if you're going to write a book you need to just do this you can't keep waiting for the perfect idea Mm -hmm. and assume that it's just going to happen you have to make a decision and just bloody get started (laughs) you bloody do yeah and I was like okay well what if I just try to bash something out quickly and just get it out of the way and see if I can write a book do something formulaic so Mm -hmm. I thought romance 
Everyone tells you that romance has just a set structure and you hit the certain beats and then you have your story. I couldn't write a straight romance because I think humour is always really important to me. So I started thinking about romantic comedies, Mm -hmm. which most of my favourite stories are in books and in movies. Mm. Um, I think it's just a magical genre and I'm so happy that it's having kind of a resurgence Mm. at the moment. Because at the moment we need happy stories. Right. Yeah, you do. So I decided I wanted to play in that field and, as I said, every time I sat down to write fiction, I found myself going back to that area where I grew up and just thinking about all these wonderful parties that I'd been to in my late teens and early 20s. And I had just been to my sister's wedding, which was held kind of outside Dolby, and I love going to weddings. They're so fun. Do you know, I absolutely don't. You don't? No, I don't. I am one of the, and I hear a lot of people say that, I love going to weddings. I couldn't think of anything worse. Mm-hmm. I don't know, a lot of sitting around, a lot of like, oh, a lot of speeches. Oh, I love the speeches. <laughs> <laughs> you can love weddings. Yeah, oh, I mean, you can hate weddings. Yeah. And I think you might still enjoy the book, yeah, <laughs> I hope. But to me, you know, a, a wedding is this real microcosm of a couple's relationship, mm-hmm. but also all of the people around them who That's love right. them. Yeah. And particularly when you think about a bush wedding. But um, it's not even about all of the people around them who love them. There are a lot of people that go to weddings that aren't happy and they're part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that was why I started thinking about wedding photographers, right? Because they have a front row seat to all the action. Like they don't miss anything important on a wedding day or they're not a very good wedding photographer. But they're also, they don't have a personal stake in it. So they can observe all these dynamics playing out within families and people in relationships under pretty high pressure, like... It's a, it's a day of emotional extremes, throw in probably quite a few drinks as well as high expectations that oh, aren't always going to be met. families and pulling out the old aunt and pulling out. Oh, so fraught. There's <laughs> just a lot of potential for drama and also mm. for humour. So are you saying that your sister's wedding was the trigger for writing? Yeah, I guess, I guess possibly. Yeah. Um, Did you look around you and you think, well, there's a... There's a lot of stories around here. There's, <laughs> I could start somewhere. I think it was more seeing the effect that it had on the area. So they had the reception at her um, parents-in-law's property mm-hmm. in an old shed and the family pulled together to clean out the shed, to hang the fairy lights, to get the boughs of cotton from the farm that they hung um, with the lights and decorated all the tables. It was just like a massive team effort. The catering was someone um, that she knew through a friend. All of the wait staff were like teenagers from the town. Everyone stayed at the pub in town or in like cottages that we, we borrowed, you know, from people in the family. They hadn't had a wedding in the church for many years and the pub hadn't had so much business in years. And it was just this ripple effect of tourists staying in the town and and being part of it, as well as what it means for a small community to have a young couple, you know, saying, we choose this place, Mm. we're going to stay here, we're going to raise a family here. Like that, all those little things make a big difference to that place. Mm. I'd never thought about that. 
Yeah, well, that was something that I hadn't really thought about either. But as I went on with the book, I realised that was sort of what I was trying to say. Mm. When you were writing, being your first experience, did you? How did you approach the writing process? I literally googled how to write a novel, <laughs> and I found this. Like, I was not expecting that. I found this eight-step guide. Well, I mean, there's so many things you don't know when you start. How long is a novel? Oh, sure. No yeah. idea. Had to Google it. Yeah. And I, and that was why I signed up to do the year of the novel as well as like I can't, I can't do this on my own. I need to be accountable. I need yeah. structure. Yeah. And you know that you also need guidance, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. And through that, I met Emily Maguire. I learned so much from her because she's a wonderful teacher. But I also found this community of other people who were starting out to be writers and started to learn what I needed to learn to be a writer. But after I Googled how to write a novel, (laughs) I had, you know, started trying to come up with a structure. I would say I'm more of a plotter than a pantser. But I do find when the best kind of writing happens when you are in a flow and you're not thinking anymore. It's almost like the characters are just doing things of their own accord. Mm. Sometimes things would come out that I wasn't expecting and then you'd go back and revisit the structure and revisit the plan. And was that a discipline that you applied? Like you decided, okay, well, I'm going to write 1,000 words every day or 2,000 words every week. There is the story, there is the craft, so going out and learning how to do it, but then there's the application, you know, and that that's another story entirely, isn't it? Yeah, well, again, you know, doing that course, Emily, gave us different tools f- for how to think about how to do that. And for me, it was always about word count rather than time because I was a terrible time waster. Right. And at the point where I started writing the book, I was working full time and playing sport and, and doing lots of things. So I'd often find myself sitting down at the desk at 10 o'clock at night and procrastinating mm. for an hour before I actually started to write. It's, uh, yeah, some terrible habits. And that's when you would write at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, I don't know. I've always been a late night person. Right. I'm, I'm one, an hour into my REM, REM sleep by then. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't, hasn't been a great time for sleep no. <laughs> the last few years. Well, because your mind must be racing around that time. I don't know. It would just always, always take me a while to get in to what I wanted to write. Yeah. And then, yeah, when you try to go to bed... It, it can be hard to switch it off sometimes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, I suppose what I want to say about that is consistency is important and discipline is good, but you have to be realistic with yourself. And there were definitely periods in that first year where I, I didn't get any writing done. And it can be hard to come back after that, but you just have to be kind to yourself and any writing is better than no writing. Mm. Uh, at what point did you think you had a book? I think I knew that first year that I would finish it I didn't know if it would be any good. I had some pretty nice feedback from Emily, but it was more when we started reading aloud to the class. And at that point, you know, no one had really heard anything from the book. And I remember reading the opening scene, which really hasn't changed very much from when I first wrote it. This scene where, you know, it's late at night at a wedding reception and Eagle Rock starts to play and all the men drop their pants, which... Did, had you heard of this? No. No. <laughs> this is so, so interesting to me. I mean, it's second yeah. nature for me coming from Queensland, but I think outside of Queensland and part of New South Wales, no one is familiar with this custom. So I'm mm. interested to see how people take the start of the book. Um, but I read that scene and people laughed and they kind of cheered a little bit when I finished. I was like, okay, maybe there's something here. 
Yeah. Uh, how nerve-wracking is it to read out loud to peers? Oh, it's very Yeah. <laughs> it's very nerve-wracking and I think for anyone feeling a bit quivery like I yeah. am right now with yeah. you, but um don't feel it's quivery worth it. with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm easy. Yeah. Yeah, and nerves are a big part of it, but I think if you want to be a writer, you have to get used to well, you have mm. to want people to read your work. It, mm. it seems counterintuitive when you're beavering away on your own, but until you can show other people, it's not going to go any further. Mm. So then at what point, how did you go about publication? Did you find an agent? How did you? So I I finished my first draft of the book, and I didn't get it done within the year, the mm. year of the novel, but I was pregnant with my first child and she was due in the following April. So I was like, I have got to finish the draft. But I had the self-imposed deadline that I wanted to enter the Banjo Prize and I just didn't know if my brain was going to still work after I had been through birth. Mm. I think it's the journalism background. I need a hard deadline. So Mm. um, giving birth is a pretty hard deadline. (laughs) It's kind of not negotiable. (laughs) Non-negotiable. Yeah. And luckily... I think it was a week past my due date and I was still trying to finish some scenes. Um, and you were saying, just hang on for more days. <laughs> I had a feeling I was going to go over because um, yeah. my sister had, you know, a couple of months before. But, yeah, I was just sort of furiously baking and cleaning the house and then trying to finish um, this novel and then I, I kind of finished it and I sent it off to Officeworks to... Um, print some copies and send to the girls in my writing group and I swear it was like about an hour later I started feeling contractions. Yeah. <laughs> so I just scraped in. So I had my draft, I entered the Banjo Prize, didn't go anywhere with that but I had made contact with Emily Maguire to ask if she would do some mentoring for me and she really helped me refine the manuscript and our goal was to be able to send it out to agents um, when I was finishing my maternity leave. And we did it. Um, And so I sent the sample chapters to, I think, about five agents. Isn't it fantastic to have that mentorship? Emily's not just giving you feedback. She's in in that relationship. You're getting the connections that Mm. she has as an established writer. Yeah. No, I mean, I think um, I'd encourage any aspiring writer to see where you can make connections because Mm. so much of it is about Mm. um, relationships. Recommendations. Recommendations. Yeah, all of that. And finding common ground. You know, when we started this conversation, we worked out who we knew in common. And that's a real, you know, small town experience too. You know, you're always trying to figure out who do we know in common? How does that situate us in this world? So, yeah, the mentorship with with Emily was a structured process through writing New South Wales. Um, She didn't just do it out of the goodness of her heart, even though she has a lot of that. So I sent it out and I got an inquiry back from Claire Forster at Curtis Brown asking, she's like, I'm going to start reading this. Can you tell me, you know, is there heartache as well as good times? I was thinking about it and I didn't really know how to respond. And then I got home from work and was, had been thinking about my response. And then I had another email from her that just said, send me the rest. Oh, wow. And I think I was probably lucky that Claire has, she'd lived on college at the University of Queensland. So she had a bit of a reference point for... Mm, She could feel it. ...the setting of the book. She understood, you know, she's been to a few BNS balls in her time. So she understood the world. And I think, Mm. you know, it's a real stroke of luck to have someone connect 
straight away with the book. It's really important, isn't it? I, I often think that the relationship between agent and author is important, as equally important as the agent and editor stroke publisher. Well, I feel very fortunate to have found Claire. She's absolutely wonderful. And so she worked with me for a couple of months getting ready to send the book out to publishers. The title was all her. Yeah. She came up with Five Bush Weddings, I guess coming up with the package of how to to try to sell the book to publishers. Do you think that that's going to be a genre you're going to stick with? Have you started writing something else? Have you, or have you had a book brewing in your head? Yeah. Well, when, when we sent the book out to publishers, all the advice I had heard was start working on something else so that you're not fixated and just waiting. And so, yes. (laughs) Truly, I often wonder why authors do it. I mean, it really (laughs) is such a difficult process. Every bit of it is waiting and every bit of it is waiting for feedback and every, I, and I think then once the pub, once it's published, it's, it hasn't gone because (laughs) then you're getting the reviews and I think, why would you do that to yourself? Well, lucky you guys do because we, get the stories. Well, I think I've been really lucky. I haven't had to weather a lot of rejection or a lot of waiting, so I feel like incredibly lucky. But yes, so I I am working on a follow-up and it's very much in the same vein. It's in the same world, Mm -hmm. but it's not really a sequel per se. It sort of takes place after Five Bush Weddings, but it's some background characters from this story become the leads in the next one. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know beyond that whether I'll stay in this genre, but I think humour, I think I've always got to get some jokes in there. Don't yeah, think. you are. You're very personable, Claire. I've um, enjoyed our chat. We're out of time. The book is called Five Bush Weddings. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.